Hello, everyone. I'm Comron. And I'm Billy. Welcome to the Horse Frog Podcast, home of your two favorite professional digressors. <laughs> yeah, we've been really acing that digressor test lately. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of long diversions were going on. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You should hear us before the show, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can go on for a while. <laughs> Today we will be discussing Book 4, Chapter 11 of Gardens of the Moon, a novel in the Malazan Book of the Fallen. This is part one of our coverage of this chapter. We're trying to keep these episodes to roughly an hour or so, so we'll continue to split the chapters up to hit that target duration. Now, this podcast series is intended to be a companion to reading or listening to the book set in the Malazan universe. It's not a book review, and it's not going to be a critique either. Just know going in that Comron and I love this series more than any other fantasy series, and we would do anything to meet Stephen Erickson. We definitely love it. <laughs> And yes, I would like to meet Steven Erickson. I would do anything to be able to have enough money to make this series. You know, yes. like if I had ultimate ability to do something. <laughs> oh, you mean like a series, like a, like a movie yes. or a television series? Yes, Absolutely. That's, my, that's like my that's dream. dream. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. If I had enough money, I'd be like, I love these Hollywood producers to come tell me how they want to change stuff. I'd be like, nope, no changes. Nope. No changes. It goes in <laughs> no, as is. Unless hey, Stephen Harrison says so. You know? Yes, yes. And you know what? He, Stephen Harrison is probably the most fair-minded individual writing-wise because, of his, like I said, there is no sexism and stuff in his universe. That's folks why I love folks it. Folks folks. Yeah. I do too. It's like you don't care. He writes <laughs> all the races, all the people, all the genders. I mean, it's all there. So you don't need to change anything because everybody's covered no. at some point. Yes, absolutely. We don't need a gender swap because some of the baddest dudes – are chicks. Yes. <laughs> it is serious. Yes. <laughs> Bad excuse. Nice, nice way to say that. <laughs> I right. mean no offense at this, ladies. I mean that in all love and respect. Some of my favorite characters in this book are female, for sure. Yes. We will be covering the events of the books in a linear fashion. There will be spoilers for those that have not read the books. We will try not to spoil anything prior to us covering that portion of the respective book. Now, a quick warning. Today's episode will contain descriptions of graphic violence, and it's not recommended for children. Do we have any violence today? I don't. We, no, we have some disturbing imagery. Disturbing imagery. Okay. Yeah. This one has disturbing imagery. <laughs> okay. Does, does uh, birthing of a child disturb you, Billy? <laughs> no. It's the creature that comes out of the... To the birth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Frankenstein creature. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, that's my... Now, I can get her to watch that with me. She has not seen Young Frankenstein. Okay. So, that one's one... That I'll Now, because I did Princess Bride as homework, I'm going to have her do that with me tonight. We'll laugh at that. Okay, yeah. Fun. I think she'll like that. I mean, Dude, it's hard no, not to like that movie. Weird. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't like a lot of Mel Brooks stuff, but that's the... That is like one of the greatest movies of all time, because I love horror movies. Yes. <laughs> All right, book four, Assassins. <laughs> Assassins? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> chapter 11. The chapter begins with Kruppa sitting with his hands held over a flickering, undying fire that had been stoked by an elder god. He feels it's an odd gift, but he sensed a significance in it. He says, Kruppa would understand this meaning, for rare and unwelcome is this frustration. <laughs> is it rare for him to not know or understand something? Yeah, this guy's never at a loss for words as far as I know. So even in saying he knows nothing, he says a lot. Mm. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
He definitely has enough to say about himself. He's always talking to third person about himself. Yes. Ad nauseum. <laughs> he found himself in a barren landscape with no sign of habitation in sight. He squatted by a lone fire in the tundra. He could smell rotting ice in the air. To the north and to the east, the horizon gleamed green, almost luminescent. He saw no moon in the sky. Kruppa had never before seen anything like this, yet it was an image fashioned within his mind. He says, Disturbing indeed, proclaims Kruppa. Are these visions of instinct, then, unfurled in this dream for a purpose? Kruppa knows not, and would return to his warm bed this instant were the choice his. He looks around at the lichen and moss-covered ground and frowns at the strange, bright colors. He'd heard tales of Red Spire Plain, a land far to the north beyond the Lateron Plateau. Quick reminder, the Lateron Plateau is almost as far north as you can get on the continent of Genebacus. Okay. Still waiting on that uh, picture. Uh, I apologize. That I did not follow <laughs> through on my homework, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what it was? I just Sorry. didn't get one that I needed the right lighting, and I just... <laughs> I, you know what? It's like I, this. I, I I think I must get one. Okay. Because I like what it's doing for your. It does a lot for me, thinking about this map and uh, the, how the land is actually. Because in particular, there's only in in fantasies I've read, most lands are not places that are in and of themselves a character. And to me, the world of the Malazan universe is a, very much a character. And um, as is the land in Stephen Erickson. And also, that's really about the only places that lands speak to me that I can think of offhand. The world starts with the land. Oh, Dune. I'm sorry. Dune was the other one. Mm. That ecosystem is a real ecosystem as well. Yes. Because he's so I think that's why we like those in particular, probably why we like Dune and why we like this one so much in particular. I think they're built from the ground up in a way Hmm. to some extent. I don't know how Frank Herbert planned that out. I'll have to do some research I, on seeing what his thought process was there. I know for a fact that um, Herbert had done a lot of studies on desert. Okay. For and, and and about the planting of grass and all that stuff that that we do and that we do to plant it and that what he what is done in the later series of Dune mm-hmm. is stuff that he actually he looked real deeply into that. Okay. And there was like economic studies as well, right? Yes. Yes. He's very serious economic studies as well. Mm-hmm. That might be a lot of my interest in it because I, I really like economics as a subject. I get that too. And th- this that couched economics, that and this have couched economics in a way that I can swallow because mm. I have a hard time following that. Okay. And in Dune, it made I had it, it using it as that that really helped me. <laughs> okay. In a strange way, so yeah. There it is, folks. Your professional digressor is hard at work. <laughs> <laughs> they are aware. <laughs> <laughs> they are very aware of our digressions, yes, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they are. Um, all right, so Kruppa had just noticed the colors, and yep. he wonders if this is what Tundra looks like. He'd always pictured Tundra as a bleak, colorless world. He says, yet peruse these stars overhead. They glisten with a youthful energy. Nay, sparkle as if amused by the one who contemplates them. While the earth itself hints of vast blushes of red, orange, and lavender. Kruppa stands up as he hears a low thunder from the west. In the distance, he can see a massive herd of brown furred beasts. 
He watched them for some time. When they came closest to him, he saw the reddish streaks in their fur and their horns sweeping down, then up and out. The land shook with their passage. I envision these as some type of yak type creature. How about you? You know, I, I was thinking that kind of, but are you, are you thinking of, ma- what about mammoths? Well, the mention of the horns the going down. down then back up, to yeah. me, mammoths and elephants that's don't have yak. horns, right? No, they got them tusks. That's right. That's that's right. So, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yak would be it. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I also like the uh, the idea of looking at something like this tundra and realizing that while I, too, think of it as a bleak place, it is far from colorless. Right. There's actually quite a lot of life here, and that's I think it's what's overwhelming Kruppa right here. Mm-hmm. Kruppa says, such is the life in this world. Kruppa wonders, has he traveled back then to the very beginning of things? A voice behind him says, you have. <laughs> Kruppa turned to face this new voice. He says, ah, come to share my fire, of course. Before him, he saw a squat figure covered in the tanned hides of deer or some such animal. Antlers stretched out from a flat skull cap on the man's head, gray and covered in fuzzy skin. Kruppa bowed. He says, you see before you Kruppa of Darujistan. The visitor says, I am Pran Cole of Kanig Tol's clan among the Kron Talan. I love how every time the IMAS introduce themselves, it's like so many too. titles, like names. It's a lot. There's a lot to it. Well, what scares me too and, and is, is how, how many clans are there? Are we ever told specifically? I don't remember. We're introduced to a number of I them. I don't either. The Kron is Tool's group, and that's the group that suffered the loss. Remember that last chapter, or chapter before that, when he told the adjunct about, well, we're waiting for the other groups to show up. Mm-hmm. And she's like, whoa, if we only know about the, they've only known about this one group. Yeah. Well, I guess if it's a hunter-gatherer type people, they're spread out pretty wide into these clans, right? <laughs> And yeah, what? I'm sorry. You mentioned herder. <laughs> I'm I'm a sheep herder. Yes, you are herding those sheep. I'm sorry. <laughs> South Park hoarding. Remember the hoarding episode and the inception and all that stuff. Oh my gosh. That's what the episode's called. <laughs> you asked for it. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you, any statement I make could be asking for it when it comes to South Park. What haven't they covered at this point? You that's know? A, that. that <laughs> I don't, you know, the only thing they, that I know they haven't covered is probably this oh, man. book, <laughs> this series yeah. of books. They've covered every, they've covered the fantasy genre mm-hmm. quite well. Yeah. <laughs> and lampooned it beautifully. That was one that they were all pretending to be Lord of the Rings characters. And then somebody showed yes. up as. That's Game of the Thrones slash Lord it, of the Rings. Somebody showed up as it's Star Kevin Trek. shows up as Star Trek, dude. It's Kevin. <laughs> it's Kevin's group of Star Trek. Do you remember what that fight was about? Do you remember what that three-parter was? That's Black Friday, and that's that's the fight to the death between Bill Gates and the and the president of Sony to see who's going to win the console wars. Oh man, it's been so long since I watched that. And Microsoft, that's like a perfect lead into the game Stick of Truth, yes. which is a beautiful. I game. played it. <laughs> Finally, a magnificent game. Oh, did you play it? It's a magnificent game. Oh my! You're, you're, if you like, if you're like me and you love old school RPGs, it's South Park with an old school RPG. It's just, it's wonderful. And they actually did it themselves. Too. Yeah, it was really fun. I, I kind of feel like I hacked it in a way because, 
the class that I was playing, Faith. I think I could heal myself. And <laughs> oh, okay. basically, I just felt invulnerable the whole time. There's the one that was the one that I think about was the thief that could actually do the backstab move, which snuck off from your side of one, one side of the screen and came up behind mm -hmm. the other people. And it was really OP. He was really mm -hmm. overpowered. And um, but it was but it's still a funny game though. I still I have part two. I haven't. Played I started it, yet. it I a little bit, but one. I never got that far in it because it was a little bit different. The the battle system was different. Yeah. Okay. It was different, and I like the old school. <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah, we did. <laughs> try and semi <laughs> stay on track here. Let's <laughs> not try. lean into that digression thing too right. much. <laughs> okay. Sorry. 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 <laughs> Hey, I'm learning it today, so sorry. <laughs> Pran stepped close and crouched before the fire. He says, I am also the white fox, Kruppa, wise in the ways of ice. He glanced up at Kruppa and smiled. Pran had a wide face, the bones pronounced, beneath smooth gold skin. His eyes were barely visible between tight lids, but what Kruppa saw of them was a startling amber in color. Is this the first description we've had of a living Talan? We've had description of tools, bone structure so far, but I don't remember any living ones. I think I think you're right. Pran reached out long, supple hands over the fire. He says, fire is life and life is fire. The age of ice passes, Kruppa. Long have we lived here, hunting the great herds, gathering to war with Jaghut in the Southlands, birthing and dying with the ebb and flow of the frozen rivers. Kruppa says, Kruppa has traveled far then. Pran says, to the beginning and to the end. My kind give way to your kind, Kruppa, though the wars do not cease. What we shall give to you is freedom from such wars. The Jaghut dwindle, ever retreat into forbidding places. The Forkrul assail have vanished, though we never found need to fight them. And the Kachain Chamal are no more. The ice spoke to them with words of death. In regards to the Kachain Chamal, that's another elder race that's just kind of thrown out there. Yeah. And we will get to know more about them yeah. in later books. I can't say much about them now because I don't want to ruin yeah. anything about them. No. Also, this notion that the Jag Hut are in retreat is important. They just want to be left alone. And even though the Talan can see them retreating, they still can't accept their existence. <laughs> I know. They've got to kill them all. And, and especially with this... I don't understand why are they threatened by the Jags and they're not threatened by the Forkrul assail. I don't specifically remember if they ever call out why. Yeah, it's a serious animosity between these two, though. Pran looks back to the fire. He continues, Our hunting has brought death to the great herds, Kruppa. We are driven south, and this must not be. We are the Talan. But soon the gathering comes, and so shall be voiced the right of Imas and the choosing of the bone casters. And then shall come the sundering of flesh of time itself. With the gathering shall be born the Talan Imas and the First Empire. First Empire, okay. Okay, that helps me to learn. Uh, the First Empire, this is the first mention of the origin. Uh, we shall be born. Okay, that just helped me feel a little bit better about the First Empire. That cemented something for me in my okay. head. Yeah, and then the First Throne, the true First Throne, the person who sits on it controls the First Empire. Yeah, oh. okay, okay, okay. Kruppa says, why, Kruppa wonders, is he here? Pran shrugged. He says, I have come for I have been called. By whom I know not. Perhaps it is the same with you. Kruppa says, but Kruppa is dreaming. This is Kruppa's dream. Pran says, then I am honored. One of your time comes. Perhaps this one possesses the answers we seek. 
Kruppa followed Pran's gaze and raised an eyebrow. He says, if not mistaken, then Kruppa recognizes her as a Rivi. A middle-aged woman approached them. She was far along in her pregnancy. Her facial features echoed those of Pran Cole, though far less pronounced. Fear and determination were evident in her eyes. When she reached the fire, she mostly focused on Pran. She says, Talan, the Talan worn of the Amass of our time, has birthed a child in a confluence of sorceries. Its soul wanders lost. Its flesh is an abomination. A shifting must take place. She turned to Kruppa and opened the front of her robe, revealing her pregnant belly. There was a newly traced tattoo in the likeness of a white-haired fox visible. She continues, The elder god walks again, risen from blood spilled on consecrated stone. Kroll came in answer to the child's need and now aids us in our quest. He apologizes to you, Kruppa, for using the world within your dream, but no younger god can influence this place. Somehow you've made your soul immune to them. The rewards of cynicism, Kruppa responds, bowing. She smiled. <laughs> this dream's wild. Yeah. It appears to be in a location at multiple points in time and immune to the meddling of the gods in the current time. Pran exists as he did prior to the taking of the vow, as does the land around them. And then Kruppa, Kroll, and the Rivi exist in their current forms, present day. When Kruppa speaks of cynicism, do you think he means that he gives the gods no power by not believing in them? I'm guessing. He's an odd talent. Because, uh, you know, the thing with him is I just don't know. We know so little about him. You know, he, we see, and, we, and, and this is not through lack of seeing him, we see him quite a bit. But everything we see from him is a smokescreen. So I don't know if this is a natural, I think he has to be very powerful and this and to be separate, though, how do you remove yourself from being noticed by the gods if you're living on our world? He talks a little bit about it later, I think. I guess he does. <sighs> Pran says, I understand you would make of this child, born of Imas powers, a soul taken. She responds, yes, it is the best we can manage to land. A shapeshifter, which we too know as soul taken, must be fashioned. This is the first time we've heard that word, soul taken referring to beings which can shapeshift between their natural form and that of an animal. Remember this concept because it is important. Yes, very, very important. And yeah, there's another derivation of this type of thing that will come later that can make it a little bit confusing. So just remember soul taken yeah. is being able to shapeshift into one animal. Yeah. Kropo pointed out that they are missing someone vital to the proceedings. The Revi tells him that she is frightened and striding two worlds. Kroll is guiding her into Kruppa's realm, and it falls to Kruppa to welcome her. Kruppa adjusts the sleeves on his faded, threadbare cloak. He says, this should not prove difficult for one of Kruppa's charms. Yeah, he always looks so greasy and shabby. Imagine being greeted by him randomly in some remote location. <laughs> I think of Bueno Excelente from Section 8. It's like this, he's the hero that fights crimes with the powers of perversion. Oh, it's from mm -hmm. Batman. <laughs> well, it's Hitman universe. It's it's DC, but I have this lovely picture mm -hmm. of a sweaty yeah. white guy. Um, yep. <laughs> Definitely. It's kind of a Ron Jeremy-esque looking guy. <laughs> yes. 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 Because it's, especially with the, it's the hair, I can always think of this, because it, it's always mentioned about how oily 
Krupp is hairy as like it's running down onto his shirt mm. oily. Well, it's always sweaty and he's mopping you know, his brow, right? So you imagine this sweaty, <laughs> yes. greasy hair, you know, just. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It can be 30 degrees and he's yeah. so hot and sweaty. I think it's he's like, sweaty yeah. during this Tundra episode. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's yeah. a way of life, yeah. I guess. I guess. <laughs> the Revy frowned and says, perhaps. Her flesh is abomination. You have been warned. Kruppa nodded affably and looked around. He asked, will any direction do? Pran laughed. The Reevee tells Kruppa she suggests walking south. Kruppa shrugged and bowed to them, then began walking south. After some time, he turned around and found himself alone with no fire visible behind him. A full moon had appeared on the eastern horizon, bathing the land in silver light. The empty tundra lay ahead as far as Kruppa could see. Suddenly something distant appeared, walking with great difficulty. It fell once, then climbed back to its feet. Even in the moonlight, it appeared black. Kruppa moved forward and stopped when he was 30 feet in front of the individual. When inspecting her, he saw that she had been a woman once, tall, with long black hair. Now she appeared long dead, withered, and the flesh had changed to the hue of dark wood. Her limbs had been roughly sewn back on her body. Kruppa realized she had been torn apart. That's a real Frankenstein image there, isn't it? Worse, actually, since the flesh is yeah. withered. At least he would get yeah. freshly dead parts, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, newly dead, man. It's like, yeah, this one is, yeah, and I, I forget that, you know, I, Obviously, Bellardan had to have stitched her together to, in order to bear her, I guess. So it's a real ugly image. That's a really mm-hmm. nasty image. And it gets a little bit deeper as we get deeper. I mean, just because because it's 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 horrific and pitiful together. Yes. Just the thought of being trapped in that and stumbling along. Of, yeah. You're terrified. You don't know where this is going to end up. Yeah. It's hard to tell how much consciousness is in there. Yeah. It's it's just horrific. That's that's what I was getting about. The, the to me, it's a quite. It's this is the ugly, the real, the hard image of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Other than than this, there was nothing real disturbing except yeah. other than this. <laughs> Could you imagine seeing this on a television show? I mean, he writes so visually. I never have any problem imagining anything that happens in his books. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a zombie. Yeah, imagine that zombie with the seeking for sound or seeking for something, but can't see mm-hmm. or hear anything. Yeah. The woman's head flew up and she finally saw Kruppa. She stopped walking, her mouth opening, but no words emerged. Kruppa surreptitiously cast a spell upon himself. He could see the spell of preservation that had been woven about her, but noted that something had twisted the spell, reshaping it. Kruppa barked out, Lass, I know you can hear me. Your soul is trapped within a body that is not your own. It does not become you. I am named Kruppa, and I will lead you to Succor. Come. He spun and began walking in the direction he had come from. After a moment, he heard the sound of shuffling behind him. He whispered, Ah, Kruppa has charms indeed, but more, he can be harsh when necessary. The fire had returned, a beacon guiding them. He could see the Reevee woman and Pran awaiting them. The spell he had cast caused them to appear blinding to him. Such was their power. That's interesting, isn't it? I guess he has kind of yeah, a detect is. magic spell going on. <laughs> is that, is that what you yeah, <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah. It would have to be it's, it, instead of just a, like a light glow. These guys, were, I'm, I'm assuming they're lit up mm-hmm. like beacons, hard yeah. to look at. 
Pran thanks Kruppa and notes that he can see the effects of the eye mass on her, this being Nightshell's body. Yes. The Reavy addressed the woman. She says, hear me, lost one. Your name is Tattersail. Your sorcery is Thier. The Warren flows within you now. It animates you, protects you. It is time to bring you back into the world. She once again exposed her pregnant belly. Tattersail recoiled in alarm. Pran says, Within you is the past, my world. You know the present, and the Reavy offers you to the future. In this place, all is merged. The flesh you wear has upon it a spell of preservation. And in your dying act, you open your warren within the influence of Talon. And now you wander within a mortal's dream. Kruppa is the vessel of change. Permit us to aid you. When it's laid out like this, this is one complicated scenario. <laughs> I think only someone like Tattersell would be yeah. able to process all that. To your average person, that would sound uh-huh. like a word salad, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We only know what it means just because we have the benefit of having read this series and are steeped yeah. in the lore. I mean, he spells it out really clearly, but I mean, for just a, you being in that scenario, at least Tattersell is able to understand. Mm-hmm. inside this bag of flesh. Well, is there much flesh left? It's all burned up. Yeah, and, bag yeah. of bones, yeah. yeah. Tattersall staggered into Pran's arms with a wordless cry. The Reavy woman joined them. Kruppa says, My, but Kruppa's dreams have taken a strange turn. While his own concerns are ever-present, a haunting voice, once again, he must set them aside. I hadn't really thought that this is all new to him. You know, prior till now. He doesn't know anyone here aside from yeah. Kroll. Quite a lot to take in, especially on the prior point I made about Pran's summary of Tattersail's situation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Krapes, the fact that Kruppi just takes it all in stride, I mean, it, I think it kind of just betrays a glint of the true master that he probably is mm-hmm. underneath all this, uh, this disguise of slipperiness and whatnot, which we get a little more hint at, not in this episode, but next episode as we talk more about Kruppa seen through somebody else's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Kroll appeared at his side. He says, not so. It is not my way to use you without just recompense. Kruppa looked up at him. He says, Kruppa asks for nothing. There is a gift in this, and I am glad to be part of its making. That's quite different than the Kruppa we are used to seeing, given his propensity for food right? and drink. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite generous. Very generous offer him. Is, is, this, is this why he gains Krull's favor? Is it just the fact that he just could creep in, or is it because Krull could come into his head when we first were introduced to Krupp and were introduced to Krull not too long afterwards? And is it just because, I mean, is, it, is that why he gains this entity's favor? Or is it all a facade? Or is any of what we see from Krupp a real? I mean, <laughs> That's the weird thing about Krupa. I think this is him being genuine. I think so too. And I mean, I think he's a genuinely a, a, just a kind of a generous mm-hmm. moment. I think he's kind of amazed at this. It's because it never once mentions that he feels threatened or scared in any of this. He's more intrigued. He just seems to be kind of like, this is kind of yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. He can tell some big stuff's going down. Yeah. And he takes it all in stride. Kroll nods, but still insists Krupa name something. Kruppa tells Kroll of Ralic and Marilio's efforts to right an old wrong. They think Kruppa is ignorant in the matter, but he intends to turn their schemes to serve him. He feels guilty about it, but he needs them. Kroll asks, what of the coin bearer? 
Kruppa informs him that the protection has been set in motion, though its final shaping hasn't come. He reveals that he knows the Malazan Empire is covertly present in Daruzhistan. Kroll tells him that what the Empire seeks isn't clear even to them, and that Kruppa should use this to his advantage when he meets them. Kroll goes on to warn Kruppa that two individuals approach Daruzhistan, one a Talan Imas and the other a Bane to Magic. Their purposes are destructive, but there are forces already in motion to deal with them. He tells Kruppa to seek knowledge of them, but not to oppose them, since they are dangerous. He finishes saying, Power attracts power, Kruppa. Leave them to the consequences of their actions. That's that power attracts power theme again. Yeah. It's such an important concept in this series. Yeah. Well, I'm always amazed in this series how it's like, you know, the, and I know I've mentioned it before, how how he keeps managing to build through the book. And you think, man, you keep seeing some crazy stuff and crazy stuff and crazier stuff and crazier stuff. It's just like, he just keeps going. Yeah, the escalations. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, his esca- he's so good at the escalations. They're ma- to me, mm-hmm. it's just masterful. Yeah. I was reading a subreddit that was just so full of blasphemy. It was that they were just, they just couldn't understand why this series is so good. And I said, I, I dropped it. I said, hey, you need to be listening to the horsefrogproductions.com. Really? We try to make it, we try to make it clear to y'all. Really? We're trying to make it real. Yeah. What was the blasphemy? It was like, it's just, it was just, the, oh, it's just too big. It's just too this. It's too that. It's like, dude, read the book. I'm reading that S. Gates. It's just so much going on. Yeah. It's great because there's so much mm-hmm. going on, dude. It's, it's, it's because you'll be able to come back and enjoy this thing over and over and over again because you keep seeing different things. I mean, doing it with you has made it so much different than my previous readings. I don't realize how much he's been information dumping us because there's so much he's yes. dumped on us. And just take just taking a weekly look at this re- lets me realize, good gravy, this guy gives you so much information. I get why people are overwhelmed, but it's, the, it's because we gloss over it. He tells it right there. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. We, we just try and speed read through it. You don't know what you don't know, though, when he's putting that information out there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. It's a lot. It is. A, I get why it's daunting. I do. But that's what we're here for. One of the greatest joys I had was when going back through this on the first read through the first time I was rereading it, I should say. Yeah. All those little nuggets that stick out to you, you're like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And you didn't. Yes. And I know what that means now. Yeah, you're yeah. very overwhelmed the first time. I can see that, it, it, but the story's still epic. Oh, it's still amazing. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't take away from how epic it is because there's so much crazy stuff that happens on the surface. I mean, just think of the assassin, the, the knife fighting assassins, gravity defying, all that craziness, dude. That is just, and then the Talani mass showing up. Dude, there's enough. And there's the brutality of the war. I mean, just think about all the craziness that just exists. There's just so much going on. I can understand why it can be overwhelming, but dude. It's because that's one of the reasons I love this book, because it's like, unlike most writers, I feel like it's like they're tying high points together. It's like it's never tying high points together with him. It's just like the story just kind of naturally escalates for some reason. It's like we're given a break. Not we're, we're never given a break. It's just like. We have to take this time to fill you in on a bunch of information because now it's going to really hit the fan. <laughs> the next other, it's, it's you need to know this going in because it's about to really get. If you thought it was deep, now wait till the next chapter. It's getting fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah his master of escalation, I think. Yeah. 
All right, so Kroll has said power attracts power. Kruppa nodded. He says, Kruppa is no fool, Kroll. He openly opposes no one, and he finds power a thing to be avoided at all costs. I had mentioned this earlier, right, that Kruppa, we were talking about what he is and how powerful is he, and he actively avoids attention, right? But he doesn't. But he, well, he avoids, yeah, he act. well, that's why Mm -hmm. he's a master. We know he's a mentor as a right. thief to Crocus, mm-hmm. but he's obviously a magician of no small skill and obviously some kind of intellect as well. I mean, there's, there's, like I said, he's a, he's an enigma for sure. Cause he's got lots of different parts he keeps to himself. And, but may, I, I have a hard time believing it's all due to cynicism. How would he know how to use yeah, magic? If it thing. was, some, if he's I don't know cyn- how he protects himself then. Yeah. How did he will that spell that, that he could see people? Unless he's elder. Use it. Dawn, dawn, dawn. Right? <laughs> right? That just... But Kroll would have said, so, that, I would think those two, but he does have the KRU and there's Kroll. Is this his, is this his mortal incarnation uh, of no, Kroll? Is Kruppa? It's too far. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bridge past yeah. a bridge too Maybe far. Maybe on it? this read through, <laughs> I'll finally find a tidbit of information that tells me what Kruppa is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, goodness. As these two spoke, the Reavy woman had taken Tattersail in her arms and was rocking rhythmically and softly chanting. Her water had broken. Pran squatted nearby, silently forming words with his mouth. Suddenly, the Reavy woman tossed the body away. It crumpled into a lifeless heap. When I read that, I thought, man, Bellardan would be upset, but Bellardan isn't around to be upset about right. it anymore, so... The moon hung immediately overhead, so bright that Kruppe couldn't look directly at it. The Reavy woman squatted in labor. Pran remained immobile, his body racked in shivering bouts that twisted his face with pain. His eyes opened wide, glowing bright amber, and fixed on the moon. Kruppe asks Kroll if Tattersell will remember her former life. Kroll says that's unknown, since soul-shifting is a delicate thing. Tattersail was consumed in a conflagration. Her soul's first flight was carried on wings of pain and violence, where it entered another ravaged body, bearing its own traumas. The child born will be like no other ever seen. Kruppa grunts and notes that, given her parents, the child will be exceptional. Realizing something, Kruppa asks Kroll about the first child within the Reavi. Krull says, There was none, Kruppa. The Reavy woman was prepared in a manner unknown to any man. He chuckled, then says, Including myself, this sorcery belongs to the moon, Kruppa. Ah, the mysterious <laughs> ways of women. <laughs> right? Right? Oh, Kruppa and Kroll watched the labor for hours, more hours than it seemed the night could hold. The moon remained overhead the entire time, as if guarding them. Finally, they heard a cry, and the Reavy lifted a small child furred in silver. The first sloughed away. The Reavy woman raised the child to her mouth and cut the umbilical cord with her teeth. That's hardcore, man. <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty hardcore. I would have looked for a sharp <laughs> rock or something. <laughs> Pran walked up to Kruppa and Kroll, looking exhausted. He says, The child drew from me power beyond my control. The woman held the child against her chest. Kruppa's eyes widened when he saw her flat belly now devoid of the white fox tattoo. Pran says, I'm saddened that I may not return in 20 years to see the woman this child shall become. 
Kroll says, you shall, but not as Talan. As a Talan, I mass bone caster. The breath hissed between Pran's teeth. He asks, how long? Three hundred thousand years, Pran Cole of Kanigtol's clan, Kroll responded. Kropa laid a hand on Pran's arm. He quipped, you've something to look forward to. <laughs> Pran stared at him for a moment, then roared with laughter. How else can you respond to something like that? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I know. It. I don't. There's nothing you can do. I, I love that he howls with laughter. And uh, I forget so much of this dream stuff of Krupp is in the later books and how this is, you know, how this is our first glimpse of, of the humanity mm-hmm. of the IMAS. And they, they're not just undead monsters. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're actual entities that this is something that's a, actually, strangely enough, a culmination of something they were looking forward to. <laughs> For 300,000 years, apparently. Yeah. Tool, he's more loquacious than your average Talani mass. Yeah. But, well, just because he's, because apparently everyone he was bound to is dead. So I guess he's not, I guess that kept him quiet. (laughs) We are provided with a flashback for Kruppa, outlining the events prior to the dream we just went through. Immediately after the events in Baruch's study where the wax coin had spun in the air and disintegrated, and with the revelation of the coin bearer, Kruppa was in the process of leaving the grounds. He realized that Crocus's name was familiar to Baruch because that was the name of Mammoth's nephew, and he notes that all could have been lost. I assume he means Baruch could disrupt his plans for Crocus if he put two and two together. Yeah, that would be my assumption as well. Here is a quote of note. For a time there, Opon's power had waxed considerably. Kruppa smiled at his pun, but it was a distracted smile. He would do well to avoid such contacts. Power had a habit of triggering his own talents. Already he felt the urgings of the deck of dragons within his head. End quote. I thought the mention of power had a habit of triggering his own talents was interesting. He's such a slippery character. Yeah. It's difficult to put together what exactly he is, kind of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier. Yes, and uh, that was, uh, and, yeah, and was mentioned, remember the Toblakai mentioned in that reference in that poem, or, or not the poem, but they were giving us history, and they said sometimes those guys could become their own powers. Is is he like that? Is he a power unto himself? Did like I he has already? a warren of his own, that type of situation? Like maybe I mean yeah. it's possible his dreams maybe are a his, warren, I guess. Maybe. Right? Because of the fact they're separate. I mean, I'm just kind of curious and so I hadn't thought about that either until I don't know what like I said this this is when I talk with you that's one thing I love about doing this with you is when we look through the notes I sometimes think of things but sometimes when we're talking mm-hmm. it's different. And so it makes me think differently too. And it makes me ask questions and it may not be, but it's an interesting thing yeah. to think about because it's just because Krupp is just so, I, I mean, I, I know there's things that we know about Kruppa, but there's so much we don't know mm-hmm. about Kruppa. And um, everything he tells about himself is things we already know. He tells you the obvious mm-hmm. about himself. You know, that's what's so masterful about him. And that's a magic ability almost of itself. It's like, it's like his class. It's like he lulls you into some kind of hypnosis or something by just this He's droning. illusionist. <laughs> yeah, that may be what he is. Is, is Kruppa Stephen Erickson's own character? It's like, I can't could, even that imagine be, if oh, that, that was. would be great if, if it was. Because he was talking about illusionists, like that was, that, how powerful they yes. were, right? He said, he, yes, he, uh, yeah. 
Well, think about it. There's, you know, I know that we have a reason to withstand the things that happen later, but at the same time, it's like there's just something with him. I mean, let's come back to that dream being a Warren know, cr- thing yeah. when we get to the end of the book. Yeah, I'm thinking of something specifically. So okay. let's put a pin in that. Okay. For now. Yeah. Okay. Copy that. Oh, mm-hmm. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As Kruppa is leaving the building, Baruch's servant Roald is entering the building covered in dust and carrying supplies. I want I don't mean I don't mean to interrupt, but there's just for our f- people that are listening who are they're, they're listening for some info. Sometimes it does that is a kind of an abrupt change. And sometimes that does happen in these stories and you know because it was from the it was from that his dream into this you know kind of thing. So don't don't want people to think that we're we're, we're not slipping up on you it's it's how it works sometimes <laughs> sometimes it shifts like that real quick you're talking about the transition from the dream to the flashback to events leading up to the dream yes i had yes. considered yes. doing it like we did with the battle of pale and putting it in sequence but i was like eh. oh yeah that's a lot of work <laughs> in the battle of pale, like, it kind of made sense because the story was you didn't know enough of the stuff happening prior to it to really understand what was happening so it made yeah. sense in that case in this case i don't know that it really affects the dream at all right no it doesn't it, it doesn't it's just it's yeah well it feels it's an it's an odd jumping in this chapter because of the of what's going on you're in it's it's inceptioning right, us right. <laughs> as kruppa is leaving the building baruch's servant rolled is entering the building covered in dust and carrying supplies Kruppa offers his assistance. Roald says no, but asks if Kruppa can close the doors on his way out. Kruppa walks out of the building and notes the gate to the street has been left open. He sees swirling dust beyond and thinks it's from the road repairs. He remembers that he didn't close the doors behind him. There's a headache behind his eyes and the bright light isn't helping. He turns around and closes the doors. As he was turning to leave... There was a shout in the street beyond, followed by a loud crash. Crash was lost on him, though. A storm roared in his head, and he fell to his knees. His head snapped up. He whispers, That was indeed a Malazan curse. Then why does House Shadow's image burn like fire in Kruppa's skull? Who now walks the streets of Darujistan? Mysteries solved, more mysteries created. The pain passed, and he stood, brushing the dust off his clothes. He says, Good that said affliction occurred beyond the eyes of suspicious beings, Kruppa notes with relief. All upon a promise made to friend rolled. Wise old friend rolled. Opon's breath is this time welcome, though begrudgingly so. Speaking Kruppa is, is a skill. <laughs> it's okay. You're okay. You'll be okay. As soon as you're past the crumple stuff, you're going to be all right. <laughs> it's a nightmare reading this guy out. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. hard to read out loud. Kruppa strode to the gates and looked out into the street. A cart filled with broken cobbles had toppled. Two men were arguing incessantly as to whose fault it was while they righted the cart and refilled it. As Kruppa studied them, he noted that they spoke the Daru tongue well. But if he listened carefully... There was a hint of an accent that didn't belong. He says, oh my, and stepped back. He adjusted his coat, then took a deep breath, opened the gate, and walked into the street. I'm really impressed that the Malazans know the Daru tongue. I guess they're effectively the equivalent Mm. of the U.S. spec ops teams in the military, which are required to learn multiple languages sometimes. 
Oh, you know, yeah. like Navy SEALs. It could be. It's like a real big benefit if if you know well, multiple right. languages. Sure. Well, it's like the other. I have a couple questions. Of, do they speak Daru in the Seven Cities? No, I don't think so. Because Daru is not. the okay. Darujistan language, right? Right. I know, I know it's Darujistan, but I, I kind of feel like Daru, at least maybe maybe it's this continent. Maybe it's like French. Or like French. It's like the lingua franca of this Possible. continent. You know, that, but it's that maybe it's the trade language or something like that because there's people in pale. And, they, and there's people from Pale fleeing. There was, to there was no mention of a language in Pale, but no. you have to imagine. Well, you don't have to imagine. I mean, they're like city states. They would have to. They don't necessarily yeah. have to speak the they language because you got Revi in between. They no, probably speak they their own language. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, I mean, they're a thousand miles apart or more, fifteen hundred miles or so, right? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really curious. Yeah. Yeah, I now I like how this is what's kind of funny because how that because this is what what's so odd is that this is where Kruppa is flashing back at this point because this is where he 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 mentioned already in the dream he was aware that there was Malazan spies here. yes and this is where he this is where it's revealed so this is the flashback and now we're back on real time right mm-hmm. okay yeah in the street Whiskey Jack watches Kruppa. The fat little man with flopping sleeves <laughs> walk from the house's gate and turn left. He seemed in a hurry. The stories have merged. <laughs> Things yes. are moving forward. That's great. Yes. I love that. And I, <laughs> the streams are crossing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry tells him that's the one. Whiskey Jack asks if she's sure. She confirms that she is. Whiskey Jack asks what's so important about him. Sorry says, I admit to some uncertainty as to his significance, but he is vital, Sergeant. Whiskey Jack asks who lives in the estate, and when Sorry tells him that it's an alchemist named Baruch, he scowled and wondered how she knew that. <laughs> he asks if the fat man is Baruch. She says, no, he works for the alchemist, not a servant. A spy, perhaps. His skills involve thievery, and he possesses talent. Whiskey Jack asks, a seer? Sorry, winced. Whiskey Jack watched, bemused as her face paled. He wondered what on earth was happening with this girl. She says, I believe so, in a trembling voice. Whiskey Jack straightened up, and then he tells her, all right, follow him. She nodded shakily and slipped into the crowd. I have to quote this next paragraph. It's one of those great ones. Yeah. Yeah. Quote, the sergeant rested his back against the wagon's sidewall. His expression soured as he studied his squad. (laughs) Trotz was swinging his pick as if on a battlefield. Stones flew everywhere. Passerby ducked and cursed when ducking failed. Hedge and Fiddler crouched behind a wheelbarrow, flinching each time the bargast pick struck the street. Mallet stood a short distance away, directing pedestrians to the other pavement. He no longer bellowed at the people, having lost his voice, arguing with an old man with a donkey wobbling under an enormous basket of firewood. The bundles now lay scattered across the street, the old man and the donkey nowhere to be seen, providing an effective barrier to wheeled vehicles. 
All in all, Whiskey Jack concluded, everyone with him had assumed the role of heat-crazed street worker with a facility he found oddly disturbing. (laughs) Hedge and Fiddler had acquired the wagon, loaded down with cobbles, less than an hour after their midnight landing at a public dock on the lakefront. Exactly how this had been accomplished, Whiskey Jack was afraid to ask, but it suited their plans perfectly. End quote. Mm -hmm. I love so much here in this. I love that when he surveys the scene, he gets a sour look on his face. (laughs) Trot's going crazy with that pickaxe. That's a yes. great image right there. Oh, absolutely. Hedge and Fiddler cowering behind the wheelbarrow. I mean, these guys are crazy throwing explosives. Yeah. And if they're cowering behind the wheelbarrow, that's quite something to get them to do that. Yeah. That old man with the donkey, where did they go? Why did they leave the wood? Assume, I assume I mean, it's worth something, right? Yeah. I'm assuming that we ended up either fighting and giving them money for it, or it's all part of uh, blocking the way. And yeah. It could be cover. It could be brilliant. Yeah. It could be all part of their brilliant little scheme. <laughs> I want to know how Fiddler and Hedge got that wagon. <laughs> I know. I yeah. do, too. I mean, the whole thing is so good. And this is the stuff that makes me love Erickson's writing and the bridge burner so much. I mean, it's just... It's too good. You know, he he, it, he does something that a lot of writers just have a hard time doing, and that's hinting at things that I don't want spelled out necessarily, but just it's that that those kind of things about the people that are in the crew. You know, just the wagon. I don't know where it came from. All you know, it's just stuff like that that other people work hard at. I think, and it just seems. It, he may work hard at it too, but it feels effortless to me the mm-hmm. way that, that these characters are just so real. Yeah, styled in the way he does it. Yeah, part mm-hmm. so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Something nagged at the back of Whiskey Jack's mind, but he dismissed it, thinking he was a soldier and a soldier followed orders. When the time came, there would be chaos at every major intersection of streets in Darujistan. Fiddler had been the one to point out the difficulty with mining Darujistan and had proposed doing it right in front of everyone, with them disguised as road repair workers. <laughs> True to Fiddler's prediction, no one had questioned them yet. They had been allowed to rip up the streets and plant Maranth munitions encased in fire-hardened clay. <laughs> Whiskey Jack asked himself if everything was going to be so easy, then his thoughts returned to Sari and he concluded, not likely. Quick Ben and Kalam had somehow managed to convince Whiskey Jack that they would be better off without Sari in tow. <laughs> I bet they did, those slippery devils. Oh, I love those rascals, man. Those guys were more squirrely than Hedge and Fed, yes. I think. <laughs> yeah. It's that seven city squirrely. Oh, yeah. I don't know what there is about it, but there's something about the seven cities and their, and their squirreliness that I love. Yeah, there's something about those two. It's almost like they grew up getting in trouble together. And I know what th- they just have that way of working together to get in trouble or get out of trouble. Yeah. Right. I think they get in trouble to get out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. Uh-huh. Sorry had tagged along with whiskey Jack's crew and her eyes never rested. But outside of that, she had offered little in the way of assistance. Whiskey Jack was relieved now that he had sent her off following the fat man's trail. <laughs> Again, Whiskey Jack wonders what had pulled her into the world of war. He couldn't get past her youth and couldn't see past her cold, dead eyes. 
even though he still told the squad she was as human as any of them, the more questions he couldn't answer about her, the more his doubts grew. He still knew nothing about her, and had been surprised with the revelation that she could manage a fishing boat. In Darujistan, she hadn't acted like a girl from a fishing village. She had a natural poise that made her seem like she came from the higher educated classes. Wherever she went, she carried herself as if she belonged there, which didn't sound like a 17-year-old girl. Right. He's having difficulty reconciling her visible age with her actions, particularly her behavior when torturing those men in Nathalog. Contemplating despair, he thought to himself that it demands direction. Find the direction and the despair goes away. For him, it wasn't that easy. The despair he felt had no shape. It wasn't just sorry, the endless war, or even the treachery from within the empire. He had nowhere to look for answers, and he was tired of asking questions. Seeing her torture those men had forced him to see what he was turning into, a killer stripped of remorse, armored in the cold iron of inhumanity, freed from the necessity to ask questions, to seek answers, to fashion a reasonable life like an island in a sea of slaughter. Turning his thoughts to the future, he reminded himself that in the days and nights ahead, people would die by his command. He'd made his plans as if nothing of himself was at stake. Yet, his friends might die, and friends of others might die, and sons, daughters, parents. At least he finally admits to himself that his squad are his friends. Yeah, I really like that moment of recognition. That's... I think he's always we we've known this and he knows it, but it, it, I think he was afraid to voice it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because maintain that kind of separation as commander, yeah, and leader, yeah. No. And I that agree. entire section there really dove deep into his current mental state and what a sad state it is. It's, it's really not good. No, no, it's not. It's a well. I mean. I, it's one thing to be a soldier, but I can't imagine being a soldier where it's just been like what you've probably been doing for 20 years. And I mean, it's not like you're stationed and chilling. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you're on the advance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're kind of chilling when you're under this, when you were trying to dig a hole that turned out to be a grave for most of your friends. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that in and of itself is bad enough, right? Never seen the light yeah. of day for two years. Yeah. Turn into Morlocks. Very bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shaken by his thoughts, Whiskey Jack looks up from the street and sees a man, which we know as Baruch, looking down at him from a window. His hands are stained red. This shakes Whiskey Jack even further. Whiskey Jack bit the inside of his lips so hard he tasted blood. He told himself to concentrate or he'd die. And not just him, but his whole squad. They trusted him to get them out of this, and he had to keep earning that trust. He spit blood onto the street and hissed to himself. There, it's easy to look at, isn't it? Fiddler and Hedge walked up, wearing troubled expressions. Fiddler asked if Whiskey Jack is all right. Mallet also walked up. Whiskey Jack grimaces and says, We're behind schedule. How much longer? Fiddler and Hedge looked at each other, and Hedge responds, Three hours. Fiddler says, We decided on seven mines. Four sparkers, two flamers, and one cusser. <laughs> we still haven't learned what these actually do, but their names give a little bit of a hint. You probably don't yeah. know what a cusser is yet. You'll yeah. find that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other two are kind of self-explanatory a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
Whiskey Jack asks if that will bring down some of the buildings. Fiddler says, sure. No better way to block an intersection. Right. Hedge asks if there's a particular building Whiskey Jack wants dropped. Whiskey Jack tells them the estate behind them belongs to an alchemist. Right, Hedge says. That should light the sky all right. Yeah. Fiddler grinned at Hedge as he said this. These are mad men. Yeah. <laughs> These are the kind of people I love reading about. But if you knew them... You'd go the other way if you saw them coming. <laughs> I'm sure these, these are natural-born troublemakers, these two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Whiskey Jack tells them they have two and a half hours. Mallet steps up and softly asks Whiskey Jack, another headache? Whiskey Jack closed his eyes and nodded sharply. Mallet raised a hand to his forehead. He says, just easing it a little. Whiskey Jack grinned ruefully. He says, this is getting old, Mallet. You're even using the same words. He could feel a cool numbness as it flowed through his thoughts. Mallet lowered his hand. He says, when we have time, I'll find the source, Whiskey Jack. Whiskey Jack smiled. He responds, right, when we have time. Mallet tells him he hopes Kalam and Quick Ben are doing okay, then asks if Whiskey Jack sent Sari off. Whiskey Jack confirms he did and tells Mallet that the rest of the squad is on its own. The other three know where to find them. Whiskey Jack looks back up to the window and sees the man with the red hands is still there, though he is looking out over the rooftops. Whiskey Jack looks back down at the map he has spread out and sees every major intersection, the barracks, and Majesty Hill had been circled in red. That's quite the bold attack there. So many major areas. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially it, 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 this is just a few fellas that's doing this, that's preparing the way, you know, it's in such masterful tactics for creating chaos here. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Whiskey Jack gets Mallet's attention and tells him he bit the inside of his cheek again. Mallet raises his hand to heal the wound. These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to stop here this week and then finish the rest of the chapter next week. Good read, though. Yep. For standout moments, the reveal of what Tattersail had moved into was crazy. Nightchill's body and the state that it was in. I mean, we kind of had an idea, but actually having it described was rough. Yeah, seeing it, man, that's horrific, dude. And it's got to be – I just love how – all that stuff happened. I love how strong Tattersail really is too. We know we know this because it's been told that she's turned down the high mage gig in the past. So mm-hmm. she's powerful. Yeah. The fact that the dream bridged time was really cool. I thought that yeah. was neat. I really enjoyed that whole bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The ritual itself, the transitioning of Tattersail into the baby and the birth, particularly with the moon hanging directly overhead, had some strong imagery. That that imagery really resounds with me on, on a different level because I'm a huge comic book reader and in particular Neil Gaiman, the guy that did Sandman, mm-hmm. um, the moon imagery is very strong and when he's written some of his female characters. And I think that's even – it. they even do that in the television show. I think that somebody pulls the moon closer. Uh, and so anything with the moon kind of always – especially when that, that – idea of it hanging directly overhead for some time always i don't don't know why that's something that always kind of strong imagery for me mentally for some reason yeah kind of i love the moon evokes the the moon legend of zelda majora's mask a little bit doesn't it 
See, I haven't played much Zelda. I said it's funny. I played a lot. I played the Breath of the Wild, the mm-hmm. new one, but I have only played the original Legend of Zelda and Breath of the Wild. Okay. I, have, okay. I, I haven't played anything in between, and I, I I'd like to, but I'm I'm re, I, dude. I've logged a ridiculous amount of Breath of Breath of the Wild. I'm about five hundred hours. Oh wow! On, I, I keep restarting. I love that game. It's 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 kind of chill. It's not so violent as other games, and sometimes it's just nice to run around and do chill things. I watch my kids play it a little bit. It's a pretty sweet game. Yeah. Kruppa realizing the Malazans were already there was one of those moments like you see in those infiltration movies where someone realizes yeah. the enemy is already here. Yes. But the funny thing for me, I, well, it's, it's that, does Kruppa tell Baruch this, or do we just, we know that Baruch knows, I think, something's going on. I don't know. The, you remember the omen of the red wash? At that exact moment, he's like, I will find you! And they're right in the street below, right? <laughs> I know it. No, they are. That's right the irony there. of that. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. So I don't good. know that he tells him. No, I, he must not. Yeah. It's like, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, this is where, that's why Kruppa is so different because he appears to be working for Baruch, but is he? No. <laughs> I don't he's think so. Him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he work for anybody? I mean, he's doing something for Krull, kind of, but it's not like he's under orders, I don't feel. He's just being cool to Krull because, you know, hey, why not befriend an elder god? Whiskey Jack surveying the squad and seeing them taking on the role of the heat-crazed street workers, that whole section there, loved it. Yes. I just it, Well, it, it's another one of those, I think that you and I just... We we keep coming back to the Marines mm-hmm. and that, you know, his his Marines are so well-written so real, so funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, like I said, I love reading them. I don't know if I'd want to hang out with these old boys. Hmm. I'd probably be one of the first ones killed. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Learning more about Whiskey Jack's mental state, though really sad, is important, and you can't yes. help but feel for him and how trapped he feels in his current position. You know, or even the responsibility he feels for his squad. Oh, I know what. It. It's real heavy. It yeah. weighs. You know, heavy weighs the crown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, I liked how the storylines are finally being tied together here as well between yes. the Rouge Stand and the Bridge Burners. So timelines are getting synced up. Yeah, to start this is. And if you thought it was crazy before, man, it's going to get really good. We say that every time. Oh, it what, just what? keeps escalating. It does. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? No. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I may I, be an a-hole, <laughs> but I'm not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. You have any final thoughts? No, just a minute. I really again just enjoyed the uh, enjoyed the episode, and um, uh, just I look forward to next week. Yeah, good I, job I just, tonight. Uh, uh, great job, man. Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yes, great episode. We can't wait to see you next week. We thank you all for joining us today. Again, we'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, and we've had a really great time talking about the topic today. If you would like to support our show, you can find us at horsefrogproductions.com, where you can find our Patreon link. Depending on the platform you're listening from, it may also be in the episode description. And if you'd like to contact us uh, through email, it's at contact at horsefrogproductions.com.